0: Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13, going into chapter 2, verse 3. So let's just talk about the theme of um, 1 Peter. The whole theme is strangers in a strange land. It's how do we as Christians live in a world of persecution, of hostility, of temptation? How do we do that? And before Peter tells us how to do that, what does he start with? He starts with who we are in Christ. He talks about our election. He talks about our sanctification. We spent a lot of time last week on the fact that we've been born again. And so Peter's big issue, and we're going to talk about it again tonight, is so we could probably say tonight, the way we could, we could ask the question tonight is, how will you, as one who's born again, one who's regenerated, one who has new life in Christ, how are you going to live out your Christianity? Okay, so that's what we're, that's what we're going tonight. But before we actually get there, he wants us to understand who we are in Christ. So let's pick up in chapter 1 verse 13 and we'll go to verse 25 and actually I'm going to go into chapter 2 verse 3 because um, when you the chapter divisions and verses were put in later and really when you look at the original manuscript and well not the original manuscript, but when you look at the original language and everything, and you look at the way it's structured, really chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 are part of the the same unit of thought at the end of of, of verse 25. So let's read. You guys ready? All right. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The first thing that we notice in verse 13 is a transitional word that Peter uses, therefore. Now, anytime you see a therefore in the Bible, what do you have to ask? What's the therefore there for? Okay, why is it there? So what Peter is saying is therefore, or in other words, in light of everything I've just taught you about being born again, your identity in Christ, therefore now here's how you are to live it out. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this next idea because we've spent time on it, but all throughout the Bible, you have two major issues going on. You have what we call gospel indicatives and moral imperatives. Now, what are the difference between these two? We've talked about it before, but let's just do a little bit of review. The indicatives, the gospel statements, these are statements of fact that relay what God has done for us in salvation. These are not things we're called to do, but things that God has done for us in Christ. Okay, so let's put it this way. Okay, so you've got gospel indicatives. And the reason they're called indicatives is because of the Greek mood. And then you have moral imperatives. So instead of thinking indicatives, imperatives, I'm going to give you two big words that will help you understand this. Okay? Okay. Gospel indicatives are what Christ has done. Moral imperatives are what you're supposed to do. See the difference? One of them, God has done everything. The other, this is what you're supposed to do. Okay? So the imperatives are the commands, hey guys, that um, the Lord calls us to obey. Okay. Okay. Now, I'm just going to give you just a little bit of review. This is not in your notes, but let's just think about this. What does Peter start with in the book? Does he start with, this is what you need to do, or does he start with, this is what's been done for you? What's been done for you? So if you go back and read what we've studied the past few weeks, what's been done to you? You've been chosen, you've been sanctified, you've been born again, you've been given grace. God has done these things in your life. But now he's switching to, okay, here's what you're supposed to do in light of that. What would happen if Peter just started his letter out with, here's what you've got to start doing without telling us what Christ has done? What would be the attitude that you could adopt if that's how Peter started out? Two things would happen. Number one, you could be very legalistic and prideful and say, I can do it. Just give me the list of things that I'm supposed to do in my own power. I'll charge out and I'll do it because I can do it. Give me my list. Others would look at that and say, wow, I can't even begin to do that. I already feel defeated. I already feel frustrated. I already feel despair. So instead of telling you to do stuff right away for Jesus, Peter says, I want to remind you what's been done for you in the gospel. And that serves as the motivation that serves as the power, that serves as the grace given to you so that you can start doing things, okay? Now, Paul is a lot easier to flow. You go to the the book of Ephesians, chapters 1 through 3, all indicative. He gets to chapter 4, therefore, walk in a manner worthy, and chapters 4 through 6 are all moral imperatives. Peter, interestingly, weaves them in and out. So he'll start telling you what you need to do, and then he'll weave in an indicative of what God has done, and then he'll weave back out on what you're supposed to do. So he weaves them back and forth. So I'm going to help you tonight because when you study the original language, you understand that what Peter's giving us are five major commands or imperatives that we're called to obey. And the way we obey these is because we have been born again. So Peter's going to say, okay, I'm going to lay down for you five major things you are supposed to do as a born-again believer as you live life in this world. So what are these commands? Well, we'll look at them in order (laughs) in the text, and I'm going to kind of tell you there's major things we're supposed to do, and there's kind of subpoints under it depending on how Peter writes. So I'm going to do my best to tell you what the major ones are, and then sometimes he tags descriptors underneath. Okay? So here's number one. Here's the first major command that Peter tells us to do. Before we get there, I just want to let you also know that these are in what we call the aorist imperative. I don't expect you to remember that, but I'm going to tell you what it means because it's kind of important. It means that there are commands to be obeyed, they're imperatives. But yet, since they're aorist imperative, it means that they are to be done with an urgency. They're to be done with a serious attention. So let me, let me do it this way. Hey, when you guys get around to it, you might think about possibly doing these things. That's not an aorist imperative. An aorist imperative is, these things are important, so get busy doing them. Get serious about them. Don't put them off, Okay. So Peter's pretty urgent in what he's calling us to do. So here's the first major command. Number one, the first command is, and it's interesting it's a command, but it's in a command, we're to set our hope fully on our future salvation when Christ returns. Hope is a key word used in the, um, the book of 1 Peter. So verse 13 Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The main verb there is set your hope. Now, who's the original audience that Peter's writing to? This was a few weeks ago. So who are these people he's writing to in the original audience? Well, they're struggling Christians who are being persecuted. They're in modern-day Turkey. They probably are losing hope. They're being persecuted, they're they're living in a in a, a world that's against them, and so Peter is giving them some pastoral encouragement. So let me ask you a question. And I don't know if it's a cut and dry answer, but what is the primary difference between faith and hope? And they're two different Greek words. They're intrinsically linked. But let me just kind of give you a basic definition of what I think is the difference. I think faith is more trusting God in the present, like in your present situation, and hope is more putting your mind upon what God has in store for you in the future. Now, I think you can use those words interchangeably, but it's interesting what Peter says. Peter says, Set your hope. He doesn't say, Have faith, he says, Set your hope. Fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what are we supposed to be hoping in? What are we supposed to be thinking about? What does Peter say is the primary thing we're supposed to be doing here? Waiting, hoping, setting our hearts towards the second coming of Christ. When G- he says right there, at the revelation of Jesus Christ, at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul in Titus 2.13 says, calls the coming of Christ our blessed hope. Titus 2.13, we're waiting for our blessed hope. What is that? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we're to hope in the second coming. Now we talked about this a little bit last time. Is hope, I hope this happens, I'm not really sure. Or is it? I know it's going to happen, God has promised it to me, and I'm banking on that future. But let me just stop and ask a question. How often do we not think about heaven and we think about our problems right now? Seems to be a problem. Hey, Nick, come on in. (laughs) Now, no, he looks like he forgot something. So, Peter is going to give us two ways that we do that. Because the first question you may ask is, okay, he's telling me to set my hope on the future. That sounds good, Peter. But man, I sure get distracted. The things of the world sure come in and get me off that focus. How often do you think about heaven? don't answer that out loud. How often do you think about the second coming? Or are you most of your things pressing on like what's right in front of me. and <laughs> The things I got to deal with. So he gives us two ways to set our hopes. And, you, and so these are at the first of the verse. So go back to the first of the verse. These aren't the main verbs. These are modifiers or what we call participles that define for us how we're to set our hope. So first of all, he says, therefore, preparing your minds for action. And if you have A little footnote, it may give you the little Greek translation, which really helps you out. Um, I know all of you want to gird up your loins. Gird up the loins of your mind. It really referred to tightening a belt or a cord or tying something down. When soldiers would go to battle, uh, they would pull up the corners of their undergarments so they wouldn't be free-flowing and they'd cinch their belt so that they would be ready and prepared and they could move. So what's Peter really saying? He's using a metaphorical language here. He's saying here, okay, if you're going to set your hope on the coming of Christ, if you're going to set your hope on heaven, it means we're to discipline our minds. To discipline our minds. To tie up the loose end in our thoughts. To have a focused mind ready and willing to think about the future. Paul says it this way in Romans twelve two, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your what? The renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what's the good and acceptable and perfect. Colossians 3, 2 through 3, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you've died with Christ and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So let me ask you guys a question. Do you believe that most of the battle in your spiritual life takes place in your minds, i.e. hearts? I don't think you can make much of a distinction between your mind and heart. I'm just talking about that internal part of you where you think, where you process, where you feel, where you emote, where you desire. Before you actually act out on something, what are you normally doing? thinking about it, dwelling upon it. So a lot of the battle takes place in the mind, and that's why the Bible is very clear on having a clear mind, having a renewed mind, setting your mind on Christ, girding up the loins of your mind, preparing your mind for action. Now, what's our temptation when it comes to our minds? Why would He encourage them to prepare their minds for action. What's the temptation about our way of thinking? If you're struggling, or you're in going persecution, or you're enduring hostility, what are you tempted to think about? Well, I must be all alone in this. What was that, Jerry? Ourselves. Ourselves. I'm all alone. I've got problems. Um, this is a big joke. God's pulling on me. Um, it'd be a whole lot easier if I could just live like the world. Living this Christian life thing is too hard. And what do we end up doing when we start thinking like that? Do we hope? What does it turn into? Discouragement, despair, anxiety, depression. So when you start having a worldly mindset that's focused on yourself, your problems, da-da-da-da, you're nearsighted and you're not seeing the hope that God has for you. So you really need to ask the Holy Spirit to help renew your mind, to give you grace, to renew your mind, to have your mind engaged, to think about Jesus, to meditate upon Jesus. Now, it was interesting yesterday. I thought it was kind of actually a little weird. <laughs> I went to go have lunch with Don at school. So I brought in Subway and I went to the front desk to check in. And there are two little kindergarten and first grade boys that were sitting there in the front desk on a bench you know what they were doing? They were in lotus position with their hands like this, and they were, they were meditating, or acting like they were meditating. And I thought, that's the first time I've seen Eastern meditation. And I don't know if the front desk lady said, hey, meditate to come. I don't know what it was. I just thought it was, this is very interesting that they're, they're meditating. Okay, Eastern meditation, like Buddhism, and Hinduism says, empty your mind and become one with the cosmos. Biblical meditation says, no, so saturate your mind in the things of Scripture and the things of God that your mind is filled with the things of God. How often do we actually meditate on the things of the Lord? I'll be the first to admit, meditation is probably one of the hardest disciplines in the Christian life. Because what do we do? Okay, I will be honest with you guys. When I go home tonight after teaching... I will sit down on my chair, and I will look for a basketball game for my mind to veg, or I may catch up on a show that I've recorded on DVR, and I'll sit there and I'll veg in front of the TV. Now, is that preparing your mind for action? Now, the last thing I'm going to want to do is pull out the Bible and read it and meditate upon it. And I'm just honest, where, we, where do our minds normally go? Least possible resistance, right? Veg. okay. <laughs> homework. (laughs) So our minds automatically don't want to go to the things of God. But the scripture is always telling us to put our minds on God. So Peter says here, one of the ways that you set your hope on the future is you got to prepare your mind. You got to renew your mind. You got to saturate. You got to meditate on the things of the Lord. Here's the second way he tells us to put our hope. And I hope we get done tonight. We may not at at the rate we're going here. You've got to calm this preacher down. He's going to go off on tangents. Okay, secondly, Peter tells us that one of the ways we can set our hope fully on the grace of Christ is by being sober minded. Now, it's still related to the mind. He says, prepare your minds for action and be sober minded. It almost sounds like he's saying the same thing, but they're two different things. Literally, don't be intoxicated. Now, is he talking about getting drunk on alcohol here? No, he's talking about getting drunk on the things of the world getting intoxicated on the things of this world. Paul has something to say about that. Ephesians 5, 17 and 18. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, I'm going to teach you guys two key words that show up in the book of 1 Peter, and this is one of them, the word sober-minded. Sober-minded. It shows up a lot in this passage of Scripture, three times, okay? Right here, okay, go to chapter 4, verse 7. It's a short book, only five chapters, so chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded. He uses it again. And then in chapter 5, verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So this must be important for Peter to use it three times, to be sober-minded, to have your mind engaged in the things of the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. Babylon, the harlot was drunk on the, she got drunk on the things of the world. And yeah. So one of the things that we don't talk about a lot as Christians, and you guys just tell me, do we talk a lot about engaging your mind? Do you hear that much? What do people talk about? It's how I feel. And I'm not downplaying your feelings, but sometimes the truth doesn't care about how you feel. It's so, but as Christians, we need to balance the heart and the mind, but I wonder how much time we spend engaging our minds on the things of the Lord. One preacher, yes, Risa. Well, and one thing that I've noticed in reading or in, mm-hmm. even on news or whatever, a lot of people are, are into their, take care of yourself. Yeah, take care of yourself, be mindful of yourself, yeah. express yourself. And it's not like about the Lord. Yeah, it's it's looking inward as opposed to looking upward and outward at Christ. Yeah, and that's the spirit of our age. The spirit of our age is, look within yourself for the answers. You will find them there. And I'm thinking, man, (laughs) I look inside myself. I I mean, if I'm honest, I don't see nothing there that's good. So I got to look outside myself. One preacher said it this way, I like what he said, I can't remember who it was, it may have been John MacArthur, I just one preacher said this, so um, I don't have a footnote, but he said, a, spin- a mindless Christianity makes for a spineless Christianity. That was kind of a good thing. So, Peter's aim in writing to these struggling Christians who are undergoing persecution and suffering is to remind them that this present world, and its cares, could intoxicate and distract them from focusing on the hope of Christ's appearing. And so what Peter says, first major command is, you're going to have the world coming at you. You're going to be distracted. Your mind's going to be going in all different directions. You need to be sober-minded. You need to so renew your mind so that you do have that hope on Christ. Your mind is set on things above. You are looking up and out towards Jesus as opposed to inward and downward at your situations. Okay. So that's the first major command. Remember, there's five. So here's the first one. Set your hope on Christ Jesus, who's going to come again. Here's the second major command that Peter gives. And this is a tough one. Be holy as God is holy. Okay, Just read it as it is there. Verse 14, as obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. That comes directly from Leviticus 11.44 verbatim. Be holy, because I am holy. Now, this is a term that we throw around a lot. Be holy. He's a holy roller. He's holier than thou. And it's a churchy word. And it's one of those things that we got to just stop and ask, what does it mean? What does it really mean to be holy? Or what does it not mean? What does it mean? What does it not mean? So let me just ask you guys a question. If I were to say to you, be holy, do a lot of you automatically go, I think I know what that means? Or do you kind of think like, hmm, not sure what that means. I want you to raise your hands. How many of you like are really sure you know what that means? You know what I mean, okay? <laughs> Mr. Cotter. oh, Man, that's dating us. Some of you. I was too young. I was too young. I was really young. I was like four or five when Welcome Back, Cotter came. Um, anyway, I seen the reruns. Um, how many of you truly understand? Like, so how many of you don't really understand what it means to be holy? Like you think you do, not quite sure, it's kind of an ambiguous word, you hear it all the time, but you're not quite sure. But maybe you think you can't be that way because it's God. Okay, that's, that's and, I, and, and there's people that always said that to me, they're like, that sounds almost impossible, God is saying, be holy because I'm holy, and you're like, what? You mean I have to be exactly like God? But I think that's part of the point, because I read that every time I read it. Yeah, I mean, I can pretend on some of the others. I can't pretend on that one. Yeah. So there's a gospel in there. Yeah. yeah you, you can only do this through Christ. Right. And here and here's the thing, guys. We do not become. We do not become a part of God. Okay. It, there's a creature creation distinction. God alone is the only one who's holy, absolutely holy, transcendent, holy, pure, never sins, righteous, pure. We can never attain that. But. As those who have been saved, it does mean to be set apart, to be consecrated. And I like, that. this is the terminology that I found the best that, that I like. and It may be, may be helpful, maybe not. I like the term distinctly different. Distinctly different from the world. Now what does it mean to be distinctly different? You can be different from the world. But distinctly different means that there's a radical difference between the way you live and the way non-believers live. But we need to be careful here because anytime the word holy comes up, there can be a distortion. So here's, I'm going to give a little little warning here. Just be careful. We must be careful that our standard of holiness is based upon the Bible and not on some man-made set of rules of morality. There's a big difference. Morality is usually man-made and outward and legalistic. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls that do. Don't dance, don't play cards, don't go to the saloon, and don't whatever. It's usually outward, legalistic, don't do these things, don't watch TV. Holiness on the other side comes from the power of the holy spirit who produces within you the heart and the desire to walk in a manner distinctly different from the world and we obey christ and his word out of love and joy instead of out of duty and obligation you see the difference True holiness is a heart change that the Holy Spirit produces in you where you want to do what God says because you want to do it and you do it with joy. Morality says, I don't want to look stupid in front of other people that I value, so I'm going to adopt an outward behavior to make me look good, but I could care less in my heart. Does that make sense? Now, are there morals in the Bible that we're supposed to obey? Yes but we do them because of the Holy Spirit in us producing that holiness. Now, the, the big word I, I shared with you first was sober-minded. There's another huge word in the book of 1 Peter that he focuses on. And the ESV translates this word conduct. Um, it shows up three times here. So let's just go back and look at it. Verse 15. He who called you is holy, be holy in all your what? Conduct. Okay, go down to verse 17. Conduct yourselves with fear and trembling through the time of your exile. You go down to... Where else is it there? It may be around there somewhere. I can't find it right now, but it shows up a lot. It's the word conduct or lifestyle. It it means your way of walking. Your lifestyle, your pattern of life, the totality of your life. Does anybody have a different translation? Does like the NIV translate it lifestyle? Like do modern translations use the word lifestyle? Or do all of them use the word conduct? Yeah, it's more than just, it's a comprehensive word that means really the totality of your life. And interestingly, th- that word is in a word family in the Greek language, that comes from the word to repent. So that makes it very, very distinct in what he's talking about here. We are to be lifelong repenters. So let me ask you a question. When you became a Christian, did you repent and believe? Yes. Is that the only time you repented was when you first came a Christian? We're always to be repenting. So the word conduct, lifestyle, so think of it this way. What Peter's saying is, <clears throat> the way that you are holy is that you live a constant lifestyle of repenting and confessing and living distinct from the world. Now, it's interesting how Peter frames this. Go back up at the beginning of verse 14. How does he frame it? He tells us, <coughs> as obedient children (coughs) excuse me obedient children okay who's our father god's our father god has adopted us as his children so just like you want to be obedient to your earthly father peter here is saying because you've been adopted and loved by god and you're his child you walk in a way that pleases your father Ephesians 5, 1 through 2. Interestingly it says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice. So walk as children, imitate God. So Peter's very specific here. You're a child of the Father. You walk in a way that pleases your father. You walk in holiness imitating your father. But then he gets very specific, the specific way he does that. Look at verse 14. What does he say? What does verse 14 say? As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Now, what in the world is he talking about here? What what does the word conform mean? Don't be molded into... It's the same word that Paul uses back in Romans 12, too, when he says, do not be conformed to this world. Do not conform. Okay, so what, what's Peter saying here? Look at the wording here. Okay, let's just, let, let's just write, let's do a little bit of a Bible study here, and let's just kind of stop and smell the roses for a minute. Let's smell the, the, the biblical roses in Peter. Do not be conformed to what? Passions. Lust, okay. Lust, passions. Of what? Your former. Okay, now that's, this, this, this sentence is pregnant with meaning. Let's just, let's just unpack this because I think it's important. Okay? So what does it mean to be conformed? Don't be molded, don't be shaped, don't be influenced. By what? Passions, lust. Now, what kind of passions and lusts? The kind of passions and lusts you had when? Before you were a Christian. Before you were a Christian, you lived in ignorance. Ignorance of what? ignorance of god ignorance of holiness ignorance of the gospel in other words you didn't have the holy spirit you were dead in sin you were blind you were enslaved all you did in your former life was you obeyed your passions that's all you did now you were good from here you know you were you were quote unquote good from time to time but fundamentally in your nature and in my nature before we were christians we were slaves to those passions and we had to obey those passions, and we had to give in to those passions, and we had to give in to those lusts. Now, now that you become a Christian and, you're, and you've got the Holy Spirit living in you, do those passions come back and try to drag you in? Yes. Can they come back and drag you in? Yes. Do you have a choice now as a Christian to not do that? Yes, because you have the Holy Spirit. So Peter's saying, listen, there's going to be a pull in your life, your former life, Those former sins, those former lusts, those things you struggled with before you were a Christian, they're going to keep wanting to mold you and shape you and conform you. Don't let them do that to you. That's the way you're holy. As you walk as a child, you imitate your father, and you, by the grace of God, do not go back to those old lusts because they're going to come haunt you. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Being sober minded before you were just ignorantly and, and you were just falling into set patterns and you weren't oh, yeah. thinking it through. And so part of being holy, I almost wonder if you can prepare your minds mm-hmm. for action, you're sober minded, that's what helps you hit holiness because you're filling yourself with truth. Amen. Yeah. Yeah, there's a just position between ignorance of sin and a renewed mind of, of holiness. And he uses the word passions and lusts. It doesn't necessarily have to be sexual in nature. I mean, oftentimes it is. Um, we see there in First Thessalonians four three through five. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Okay. So what's the first major command? Set your hope on the second coming of Christ. What's the second major command? Be holy. Now we get to the third major command in this passage of Scripture. Remember, there's five. Here's the third one. Third major command that Peter gives us is to conduct, there's that word, conduct, repent, live a lifestyle, a repenting lifestyle of fear during the time of our exile. Okay, verse 17. And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. That's weird language. You and I are in exile and our world to walk around in fear. You understand what that means? <laughs> <laughs> yes, what does yours say, Isaac? In verse 17. Yeah, live out your time as foreigners with reverent fear. It's, the ESV just puts itself, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So it uses the word um, foreigners. foreigners, exiles. So, okay, so let's go back to the very beginning. Peter addresses his audience as exiles. What's an exile? What's a foreigner? Someone who lives in a nation that's not theirs. Okay, so here's the point. As Christians, we're living on planet earth, but is this our true home? So we're on exile. We're we're temporary resident aliens here until we get to our home in heaven. So what Peter's saying is, is while you're living out your life here on earth, this is not really your home, but you have to live here until you get to heaven. You're in exile. You're a stranger in a strange land. Live in such a way that you live in fear. Now, their translation said reverent fear, which is a good translation. Now, let's talk about two types of fear here. The Bible often speaks of two types of fear. And this is very, very important because a lot of people misunderstand. Okay, there is what we call a terror fear, where you relate to God as a judge. And then there's what we would call a worship fear or reverent fear where you relate to God as a father. Now, what's the difference between the two? Unbelievers who don't have a relationship with God, who are under His condemnation, better fear the Lord in a way that they are terrified because He can destroy them. As Christians who've been adopted by God, and He is our Heavenly Father, do we approach God with a terror fear? It's a worship fear. Now, it's not a buddy-buddy, I go up and give God a high fight. It's still a a fear. It's still an awe. Um, It doesn't mean that God's going to thump us if we get out of line. He may discipline us. But it means that we have a healthy reverence for God and His holiness. Now, here's the problem, and we've talked about this before, I think, back when we did Revelation do you guys think that the majority of evangelical Christians and then our churches and just the whole culture out there lives, talks about, has a healthy fear of God? Or is everything more buddy buddy? God's just kind of the big grandpa on the side. You know, it's more. We never talk about the fear. Now, this doesn't mean that we're going to walk around scared and we're like, you know, we're, we're neurotic people wondering if God. But it does mean that God is an awesome, powerful God. And part of living the Christian life is that we live in a healthy fear of Him. What does Proverbs 1, 7 say? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and destruction. Instruction. Did I say Destruction. Well, yeah, they probably despise that too, but instruction. And then notice what he says here about fear. He makes a little statement about God in verse 17. God judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Okay, here's what he's saying here. God's an impartial judge. He doesn't show favoritism and you, don't, you shouldn't just live your life banking on this familiar relationship you have with Him as Father as an excuse to go out and sin all you want. What Peter's saying is this. There are some people that say, God's a loving God, and I'm a sinning person. God loves to forgive. I love to sin, so I'm going to keep sinning so God keeps forgiving. And Peter's like, no. No. That's not the attitude to have. You should live in fear of God. Now, let me just ask you a question. We don't have a lot of time to go on this, and I don't but you can go back and read Hebrews chapter twelve. Even though you relate to God as a father in worship fear, are there times when God has a right to discipline you if you're living in sin? And it may cause pain. Yes. Should you live yourself, what I'm saying is I don't think Peter's giving us permission just to kind of live a laissez-faire life where we don't worry about holiness because after all God's going to forgive us. Peter's not giving us permission to do that. And I think a lot of Christians are at that point. Most Christians would say this, "What what can I get away with in order to still be in God's good graces versus how can I please God by living a holy life? See the difference between those two statements? One is what can I get away with? The other one is how can I please God? Yeah. Now, we've been looking at moral imperatives, right? Set your hope, be holy, walk in fear. And right in the middle of this, Peter is going to weave in a gospel indicative, explain the motivation or the foundation behind why we should live in holy fear. Okay? Notice what he says there. It comes in Jesus dying for us on the cross. He just throws that in there to make us just its like, okay, guys, I'm giving you all these commands, but I just want to remind you. The only way you can do this is because of Jesus. I want to put your eyes back on Jesus. So look at verse 18. Knowing, you know this, remind yourself of this, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So there's three questions that we kind of need to ask about this whole issue of, of the atoning work of Christ. Okay, There's some words that are used here. First question is, okay, what does it mean to be ransomed? He says, you've been ransomed. Does anybody have a different word? Bought. Redeemed, ransom. Okay, redeemed and ransomed are the same Greek word. Not yeah, not redeemed with, with silver or gold. but with the, So ransomed or redeemed comes from the world of slavery in that day. When you would buy somebody out of slavery, you would go pay the ransom price to the slave owner to get them out of slavery. So we're not talking about physical slavery here. What we're saying here is when Jesus died on the cross, he purchased you, he bought you out of spiritual slavery. He redeemed you, he ransomed you, he bought you. And, what did he buy? and so that's the question one. And second question. He's paid the ransom price to buy us out of slavery to bring us into God's family. Okay, what are we ransomed from? What? I'm here. Hell. Hell. Sin, you're right. But notice what Peter says here. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. What's futile mean? What was that? Okay, yeah, futile means empty, useless. Okay, now, does anybody have a different word besides ways? Traditions. Traditions? It's the same Greek word for conduct. Remember what we said earlier? Conduct yourselves. You've been purchased from your former life of ignorance. You've been redeemed from your former passions. You've been redeemed from your former life. And that former life was futile. It was empty. It was useless. It was a dead-end street. It was meaningless. It was spiritual deadness. You've been redeemed from that old life. So first, you've been rescued from slavery from that old life of sin and hell and death that's just empty and useless and dead and ignorance and your former way of life. But thirdly, what are we ransomed with? What's the payment? What's the payment? Is it gold and silver? Do you you go to the slave market and pay gold and silver to get something? What does he say there? You were paid for with the Precious. precious. Not just the blood of Christ, but the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He paid the ransom price with his own blood on the cross. And that word precious means of highest value. The highest of value that Jesus paid for us. Okay, and then notice how he's described, describes Jesus. Jesus is a lamb without blemish or spot. that should automatically take you back to what? The Old Testament, Exodus, this Passover lamb. The Day of Atonement lamb. The pure spotless lamb. Um, Hebrews has a lot to say about that. Listen to Hebrews 9, 13 and 14. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, that's Old Testament sacrificial system, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciousness from dead works, futile life, to serve the living God. So Peter says, listen, the only way you can be holy, the only way you can walk in holiness, the only way that you can conduct yourself with fear, the only way you can do all this is because of what Christ has done for you. Died on the cross for you. He's a pure spotless lamb. And then he says, he was foreknown or predestined, before the foundation of the world now you look at that and say well duh i'm sure god knew that jesus existed before the world was created is that what is that what he's talking about there is he talking about just a god no okay what he's saying is it was god's sovereign predestined predetermined plan for jesus to come and die on the cross and it would happen in the exact time God wanted it to happen, at the exact place, by the exact people, in the exact way. So how do you know that? Well, Acts 4,26 to28. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So, Peter kind of brings it to a point here. What should this wonderful ransom be? by the precious blood of Jesus and His resurrection and His glory in heaven right now and His future coming back produce within us. Look at verse 21. Who through Him are believers in God. You're believers in God because of the, cr- the cross. Who raised Him from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead, gave Him glory. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's in glory right now. What's all this going to produce in you? So that your faith and hope are in God. How did Peter start this whole thing? Go back up to verse 3. Go back up to verse 3. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He's caused to be born again to a living hope. What does verse 13 say? Set your hope. So everything in the Christian life comes back to the cross and the resurrection and it produces within us ultimately the hope, the hope of the future. And because we have a hope, because we have Christ who died and rose again, these first three commands we can do by His power because we're born again. What can we do? We can set our hope on the second coming. Prepare our minds for action. We can be holy. We can be distinct. We can we can have lifestyles that are different. And number three, we can walk in reverence and fear of God, all because of what Christ has done for us. Okay. So those are the first three major commands. Yes, Jerry. What word did you have? Uh, through him you have. What? what verse are you looking at? Twenty one. Twenty one. Through him you have. You are believers in God. Oh, okay. I am through him. Huh? Anybody else have a different translation? Confidence, believers. Okay. It's probably the it's probably a similar Greek word. I have to go back and look at the original language that may carry the same idea. But having faith, being a believer, and having confidence is all kind of the same the same concept. Okay. So we got the first three major commands. I said there's five. We go into verse 22 through chapter two, verse three. So what's the fourth major command here? We are to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Not just love one another, but love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Look at verse 22. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now again, these are in the command voice, meant to be obeyed with urgency. Now surrounding this command to love is the main verb. Are two modifiers, two descriptors, two reasons or motivations as to why we should and why we actually can fulfill this command to love. Okay? So what's the first reason why we can love? Before we get to defining what love one another earnestly means, let's talk about why and how we can. The first is that we've purified our souls by obedience to the truth. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth. Now, if we look at this statement in light of what the rest of the Scripture teaches, it's just another way of saying in kind of metaphorical language, because we have been saved. What, one way of saying saved is your, your soul's been purified. You've been cleansed. You've been forgiven. You're purified. When were you purified? Back when you trusted Christ for salvation and he cleansed you. It's an internal cleansing. Is it it an external, like you go under the waters of baptism, you come out, like going under, like a washing machine, you come out clean? Baptism is a symbol, right? The, The cleansing is internal. It goes back to that passage in Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So obedience to the truth is just another way of saying you have been saved. You have believed the gospel. Your soul's been purified. The Holy Spirit's come and taken up residence in you. Um, Paul says it this way in Ephesians 1 13 and 14. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So Paul says, or Peter says, the only way you can love one another. Now, think about context here it's all because of the cross of Christ, it's all because you've been born again, it's because you've been saved. You don't love other people earnestly just out of willpower or out of your own flesh. You do it because of the Holy Spirit living in you because you've been saved. Now, one of the foundational evidences, and this is in 1 John, this is all throughout the Bible, one of the foundational evidences that you have truly been saved is that you love other believers. You have a sincere brotherly love you love one another earnestly from a pure heart. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever has, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. If you're not a loving person, you may need to question if you've been born again, and you know God. Now, what type of love are we to love one another with? Here in verse 22, it says a sincere brotherly love. Can you love insincerely? Can you love hypocritically? Romans 12, 9 says, let love be genuine. Now, it's a sincere love. It's a brotherly love. In verse 22, he says, let love others Earnestly, does anybody have a different translation besides earnestly? Maybe diligently or fervently? Fervently, Fervently, diligently, earnestly. It's interesting, that word was used to describe the stretching of muscles to the farthest limit. It really means that we love each other by going the extra mile and truly demonstrating that agape type of love. It comes from a pure heart. So he's going to weave in here again the importance of being born again. The only way you can fulfill these commands, the only way you can love each other is if you've been born of God, if you've been born again. So look at verse 23. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart since or because you've been what? You've been born again. Now, he's already stated this once, back up in chapter 1, verse um, 3. And now he reiterates it again. It's it's a major theme for Peter being born again. And what does he say here? The interesting metaphor, he, he says, You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Now, you guys are farmers. I'm not. I don't pretend to play one on television <laughs> or go out and ride on a tractor, but many of you are farmers and you understand seeds. What does a, Why does Peter use the seed metaphor? A perishable seed versus an imperishable seed. Okay, so even if you're not a farmer, what's a seed? Is anything going to grow if there's no seed? The seed has the source of life. When you plant a seed in the ground and it rains and there's water and there's irrigation and there's a harvest, what happens? That seed grows into corn or grows into wheat or millet or whatever it becomes, alfalfa. And so there's this perishable seed and there's imperishable seed. Now, up in Nebraska right now, with all the flooding, there's a lot of people's farms and ranches that have been destroyed, and they're not going to have. They have perishable seed. No matter what they do, they're not going to have a harvest. This year's going to be devastating. They're saying it could take ten years to recover. So it's perishable seed. No matter how hard you plant the seed, you, you, anybody had a really bad crop, or you planted seeds and it just didn't grow well, or they're okay. So that's perishable seed. Human, perishable seed. okay. But that's not what you've been born again with. You've been born again with an imperishable seed. What does that mean? Imperishable. You've been born again with a seed that's never going to die. Now, what does this mean? Let me just kind of explain it for you. How did you become born again? Well... The Holy Spirit did a sovereign work of causing us to be born again by raising us to spiritual life when we were spiritually dead. He regenerated us. He transformed us. But how did He do it? Were any of you just zapped through salvation one day? You're walking down the street. You never heard anything about the gospel. And All of a sudden, boom, I've got to trust Jesus. No. How, does it, how did it come? The Holy Spirit did it to you, but how did He do it? And what does He says there? The end of verse 23, through the what? The living and abiding Word of God. What's the seed? The Word of God. So the Holy Spirit took the Word of God and planted the Word of God into your hearts and He grew you into a Christian. And He came to live inside of you. He brought you forth. James 1.18, of His own will, He brought you forth by the Word of truth. He caused you to be born again by the Word of truth. So, Word and Spirit always go together. There's got to be the preaching of the Word, the teaching of the Word, the sharing of the Word. But that's not enough. If it's not attended by the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit doing that internal work, nobody's ever going to be born again. And most people aren't going to be born again unless they hear the Word of God. What's the nature of the Word of God? Hebrews 4.12, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the, sp- to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, of discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What did Jesus say about being born again and about giving birth? John 6.63, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. So you got the Holy Spirit, regenerating you, causing you to be born again through the Word of God. And I'm going to make a statement here in just a moment. So let me read Isaiah 55, 10 through 11. And if I don't make the statement, remind me that I need to make the statement because I know what I'm going to say, but it's not in my notes. Okay, Maybe I should say it now before I forget. Okay. (laughs) It's vitally important on Sunday mornings, especially, when the Word is being preached, that you are praying for the Holy Spirit to take that Word and implant it into people's hearts that are saved and to cause new birth in those that are not saved? Are you praying for the Word and the Spirit? That the Spirit would take the Word and make it clear and that the Spirit would work in the hearts of people to bring conviction? They go hand in hand. If I stand up and preach and just mouth a bunch of words and say a bunch of things, it's not going to do anything unless the Holy Spirit does the work. So we need to be praying for the Word and Spirit every Sunday morning, that the Word would go forth in power and be attended by the Spirit of power to take that Word. Because how are people going to be born again? Through the living and abiding and active Word of Christ. And through the Holy Spirit's regenerative work. And we know this about the Word of God. Now I'll we'll get back to my passage. Isaiah fifty five, ten through eleven. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, it my word shall not return to me empty or void, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word is powerful. It will go out. And notice, that, that that's a, and when he says here, verse 24, all flesh is like grass, all the glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. That's a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. And then notice what he says at the end of verse 25. This word is the good news that was preached to you. The gospel has to be preached. The death is... Burial and resurrection of Jesus has to be preached. Now, how can we truly love one another without hypocrisy and with great fervency? Because that's the qualifiers. It's not just love. It's what? Love genuinely. Love without hypocrisy. Don't be hypocritical in your love and love with fervency. Easier said than done, right? Right? Is it easy to love other people? If you say yes, you're lying. (laughs) Some people, when we truly love other people, we encourage them, we pray for them, we forgive them, we walk beside them, we welcome them, we accept them, and that's hard work. Because by nature, we're what? Selfish. There's three major enemies Selfishness, Busyness, and Complacency. These aren't in your notes, but they're in my upcoming book in one of the chapters. It just popped in my head. Busyness. We're just too dang busy to invest in other people's lives. (coughs) Would you agree? Selfishness. We're so focused on ourselves, we could care less about people. Complacency. It's just too much hard work. I'm just going to keep the status quo. I don't want to invest. So what's battling us loving one another? Are you busy? Are you selfish? Are you complacent? Those three enemies have got to be rooted out because I'm afraid our church culture is being overtaken by those three things to where most people aren't experiencing the love the way God wants them to. You're not receiving love the way God wants you to and you're not giving the love the way God wants you to because we're so busy, we're so complacent, we're so selfish. But Peter here says you've got to love fervently. Now, how can we do that? Well, it's not in our own power. Peter doesn't say, hey, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and try really hard to love each other. It's going to be difficult, so just buckle up and do it. No, he says, you've been born again. You've got the Holy Spirit living in you. You're a new creation in Christ. God's Word remains in you, and so all of the resources of the Holy Spirit in you through the new birth give you the power to be able to love. Okay? Now, although our modern translations shift into a new chapter, the original manuscripts of the New Testament letters did not have chapter and verses. It was all one letter. And most scholars believe that chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, complete a thought that links back to the entire flow of reasoning. So how many main commands have we had? Four, and there's five, right? So let's just recap. What's the first? Set your hope... On the coming of Christ. Renew your mind. Get your mind set on Christ. His coming. Number two, be holy. Have a repentant, holy lifestyle. Number three, walk in reverent fear. Number four, earnestly love others without hypocrisy. And here's number five. Long for pure spiritual milk. Now, what exactly does this mean? Well, the main verb there is in verse 2, long for pure spiritual milk. But before he gets to that, Peter gives some, some, some connecting commands there. He tells us to put away some evil things. Put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Literally, the word means to strip off as of dirty clothes. Think about the imagery. One time when I was growing up in Texas, we had an empty field out by, behind our house and um, we played a thing in Texas called Texas softball. I don't know if you guys ever played here, but it's, it's, um, it's softball. It's, base, it's a bat and bases, but instead of a softball, you use a rubber playground ball. And it's like dodgeball and softball together. It's called Texas softball. Okay, so this is in the summertime, and there's an empty lot behind our house, all dirt, you know, just total dirt. And we're out there playing. I was probably in sixth, seventh grade. All of us, probably ten boys out there, and in Houston, Texas, it just starts pouring down rain, and we decide to keep playing. And like it's just mud, sliding around. It looked like a movie, like sliding around in mud, getting muddy, everything mud from head to toe. My parents walked out, and first they got mad, and they started just laughing, and then started taking pictures. But so we're so ten like little fifth, sixth, seventh grade boys, all covered in mud. Of course, they walk over to my house, because that's where everybody hung out. And my mom's like, you're not walking into the house. She's like, everybody stripped down to your underwear out there. So, you know, it was back in the day. So we all stripped down to our underwear, and my dad came out with the garden hose and (laughs) hosed us all down, you know. But think about stripping of yourself of clothes. Okay, if I were to walk into a nice, clean, pristine house with all that mud and dirt just kind of clumped around and sat down on your nice sofa, what would you think? You're rude. And you, you just sat there all day, and you sat there maybe for three or four days until the mud started caking on you. Okay, that's the image Peter says about sin. Take it off. Take off the dirty clothes. Don't let the stinky, dirty, muddy clothes that get caked on you strip them off. Get rid of them. Okay, Paul says it the same way in Colossians 3, 8 through 9. Put them all away, anger, wrath. Malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices. Put them away. Strip them off. Get rid of them. Um, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 1 says, um, lay aside every weight, the sin which so, clings so closely. Get rid of all of that sin. And that's what Peter says here. And he gives a list, five things. So, what's the, so put away what? What's the first thing he says here? malice what's malice well it can be any type of wickedness but, it, but it usually it's, it's hateful feelings feelings or emotions of hatred that boil up inside of you malice may not be ever acted out upon but it's more you, you feel it and you ponder it and you let it just kind of fester inside you feelings of hatred okay. what's the next thing he tells us to put away deceit, deceit. dishonesty falsehood, fraud. Okay, what else do we put away? Hypocrisy. It means being insincere, saying or doing one thing and then doing another. There's, there's an inconsistency. What else do we put away? Envy. We resent, we're jealous of what others have. It often leads to bitterness, grudges, and conflicts. And then what's the last thing to put away? Slander the whispers and secrets behind a person's back that try to assassinate their characters. So what does Peter want us to be? He wants us to be like newborn babies. It's been a long time since I've had a newborn baby, most of you probably here. I mean, you, Deb, it's pretty close to you, but um, I just remember when our boys were little and... um, after they were breastfeeding and i would i would feed them with the bottle just how they glob onto that bottle and and it was like you know like they couldn't get enough of the milk so what does a baby do when you give it milk desperate for milk right it needs milk it craves milk it cries for milk and nothing else what is a, does a newborn baby say, bring me the, the Sunday paper so I can do Mad Libs, or I can do the, what does a baby say? Not Mad Libs, I don't even know. What. <laughs> bring me my video game. What's a newborn baby saying? It can't even say anything. What's a newborn baby craving? All I want is milk and to poop, and to somebody clean me up, and to sleep. But what do they ultimately, what does a newborn baby ultimately crave? Milk. Attention. Milk. This is the way we are to be about God's Word. We are to be like little babies that crave the milk of God's Word. To desperately long for, to depend solely upon God's Word for sustenance and very, our very life. And When he says, like newborn infants, long, that word means to crave intensely have an insatiable desire it's like what david says in psalm 42 1 through 2 as a deer pants for flowing streams so pants my soul for you my soul thirsts for the living god you pant you thirst you crave you desire what are you desiring pure spiritual milk the milk of god's word the pure unadulterated milk so do we long for The Word of God. Do we desire to be immersed in it for our very lives? Most of the time, what do we long for? Favorite television show, music group, sports team, magazine, video game, any type of milk substitute instead of the Word of God. You Got a bunch of people drinking spiritual skim milk and not the whole milk out there. Why should we long, crave, desire the Word of God? What's the end game? What does verse 2 say? That you may grow up. Okay, babies grow up, don't they? they? They stop. You and I need to grow in our salvation. We need to grow in our knowledge. We need to so saturate ourselves that we become more and more like Christ. And then what does he do there? He kind of quotes Psalm 34, 8 in verse 3. Indeed, if you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. That's from Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. So there's five major commands in this passage of Scripture. But for the sake of memory and kind of bringing this down to summary, I'm going to summarize those five down into three because some of them are kind of related. Okay, there's five commands in the passage, but I'm going to give you three major themes just so we can leave with some three big ticket items um, to think about, to, to put into practice. Okay, first of all, we're to walk in holiness in all areas of our life. That kind of sums up the first three. Walk in holiness, walk in fear, renew your mind. It's the whole idea of, of holiness, walking in holiness, pursue holiness. Live a life of repentance distinctly from the world. Secondly, another big ticket item earnestly love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Strive for unity, peace, edification through demonstrating agape love. And then lastly, continually long for and desire the Word of God in our lives to satisfy us. So let's just sum it down. How is your lifestyle? How's your love? And how's your longing for God's Word? And I just alliterated that without having to think about it because I'm a pastor and I think in alliterative <laughs> to How's your lifestyle? How's your love? How's your longing? Those are the three questions that Peter wants us to think about as we kind of wrap up for tonight. So questions. What, what time is it? We've got about nine minutes. Do you guys have any questions or... Any comments or snide marks or things that you guys... Yes, Deb. You said something about us being too busy to be able to show love to other mm-hmm. people. I have more people that come to me that say all the time, you're just so busy, we don't know if we should come and try to help or not. So it works the other way around. So it's kind of a back... It's a back... Yeah, and that's a good point. And yeah. It goes both ways, like, like we're so busy, but yet we perceive other people to be busy. And what do normal people say? I don't want to burden you. I don't want to bother you. Um, and I have, as a pastor, I can't tell you how many times people say that. I know you're so busy. I don't want to bother you. Well, what do you think I'm doing? I'm your pastor. You're supposed to come talk to me. But people are afraid, I think, to, to show love or to intrude because they perceive you to be so busy. So they put that, even though it may not be true, they put that on you. Yeah, that's, that's a good insight. What was that, Nick? I mean, I well that's good. <laughs> and that's uh, good. Yeah, so go. <laughs> in that last part when they were talking about the milk um, the milk? So mm-hmm. mm-hmm. it's four through by four through by this. One ought be not to be teachers. You need someone to teach and teach you again mm-hmm. basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so good question. So he's ta- he's taking us to Hebrews five, where it says, "Don't stay on milk forever because you need solid food." Okay, so you've got two references to milk by two different authors in two different contexts. Okay, I think they're teaching two different things but using the same metaphor. Okay, I think in the Hebrews passage, what he's saying is you need to grow up and mature and get on solid food and don't be a baby Christian and to mature, okay? And and start putting things into practice. I think Peter would agree with that, but Peter's metaphor is not so much the nature of the... Um, his is more, we should just crave God's Word like a baby craves milk. Not that we should... Peter wouldn't say yeah, be a baby Christian and that's all you do. I think Peter's burden is to say, be like how a baby craves the word of God and take that word in and immerse yourself in that word. And the writer of Hebrews would come along and say, amen, Peter. And, and I would just add to that, you need to, as you have that craving for God's word, you need to keep growing and moving on to, to, to bigger and better things in the word. Does, does that make sense? So they're not contradicting each other, they're using the same analogy of milk and spiritual food, but I think, they're, I think their focus is a little bit different. I don't think Peter would say, hey, be a baby Christian, and all you're going to stay on is milk. I think his is more, have that same longing for the Word of God. His is more of a simile. Just like a baby craves milk, you so crave God's Word. Whereas the writer of Hebrews says, don't stay a baby Christian, grow. And Peter would say the same thing, just in different ways. Does that make sense? Yeah. Risa, what were you going to say? Well, isn't that what Peter was trying to regenerate the the people who were being persecuted? So he
1: was trying to... Encourage them? Yeah,
0: trying to baby them along. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 talks about them being babies. The writer of Hebrews in chapters 5 talks about babies. And here Peter talks about babies. And so we have to look at the context of each book to determine what he's talking about when he calls people Babies. In Peter, okay, in Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, being called a baby is not a good thing. In Hebrews, being called a baby is not a good thing. Here in Peter, being called a baby is a good thing. Not in the sense that you never grow up, but in the sense that you crave the Word of God the way a baby craves milk. Does that make sense? So you have to look at the context of the letter and and what the point is, as opposed to just saying, okay, I got milk, 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 baby, 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 they all mean the same thing. Does that make sense? That's why context is key. Good questions. I have a question. Yes. Getting back to the word holy. Yes, holy. A lot, you know, that word is used like in front of cow or uh, holy cow. Like that. Yeah. How, I mean, how do you handle that? Like in French, sacre vache. Yeah. <laughs> holy cow. Um how do you handle that? I mean, is it okay to say that it- Um there's probably a differencing of opinion. Like, are you asking? Is it like almost borderline taking the Lord's name in vain because you're attributing something that's you're attributing something that's not holy to God? I've said holy cow my whole life and never thought twice about it. I have too, and now it's like. Um, is that right or wrong. <laughs> I don't want to be legalistic, and I mean, I don't think you're literally saying that cow over there is holy, like God is holy. I think you're making an expression like "Oh wow," or "Oh my goodness." And that's okay. I think it's okay. It's not, it's not what? It's not, a stove. It's not Yeah, it's not like you're. It's not like you're invoking the name of the Lord and calling down curses upon yourself or using the Lord's name in vain. Um, is that, does that help? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yes, Brent. In Romans twelve nine, when we talked about earnestly love. hmm I'm a little confused. In Romans what now? In Romans 12.9. Yeah. Um, earnestly love, isn't in in terms of the love, you know, the four different terms for love, isn't that a story game, which is you know, gut love? or? Um, I think we make too much out of the different meanings of love, and they all pretty much mean the same thing. There's only, The only really difference would be eros love, which is more of a sexual love. But I think people overplay the agape and phileo, type of love um, when actually in in ancient Greek they were interchangeable Um, it's more Jesus said a new commandment I give you love others as I have loved you now why is that a new commandment because the Old Testament tells us to love others doesn't it every religion tells you to love others if I had a Hindu, a Buddhist, a Mormon, um, a Muslim, an atheist, and a Jewish person all lined up here, and I said, in your religion, is there a, some type of moral ethic where you're supposed to do good to other people? All of them would say what? Yes. yes. We don't kill. We don't mistreat. We try to be good and love others. That's part of our ethic. Okay. How is Christianity different than that? Because Christianity says love others love others as I have loved you how's Jesus loved us sacrificially unconditionally earnestly so we love the way Jesus loved us and we can love the way Jesus loved us because we have the Holy Spirit so it's more just than the golden rule do unto others as you'd have them do unto you it's I can love you earnestly because Christ loved me that way I can love you that way because I have the Holy Spirit living in me giving me the power to do that It's more than just, hey, I can be nice. It takes it to a whole new level of love. And that's why Christian love is so much different than just the world being nice to each other. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I think Christians think love is just, I'm going to be nice to another person. It's a whole lot deeper than just being nice. Mm -hmm. All right, it's about time. Any any last questions? Y'all done good tonight? We got done. All right, well, let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture that gives us five commands to put into practice because of our new birth. And so, Lord, help us to do that. Help us to walk in holiness. Help us to love fervently and help us to long for your word. As we leave tonight, help us just to ask those questions. How's my lifestyle? How's my love? And how's my longing for your word? And um, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.